0: Fun fact, did you know that a firefly is not a fly, it's a beetle, Uh, or that a silkworm is not a worm, it's a caterpillar, or did you know that a lead pencil actually contains no lead, it's graphite, Uh, did you know that the peanut, it's not a nut, it's a legume, did you know that a uh, guinea pig is actually not from Guinea, and that it's not a pig, it's actually a rodent from South America. So some of you guys may sit back and be wondering, like, what is pastor talking about? He's obviously lost his mind. He's supposed to tell us about Jesus, not about guinea pigs. Uh, But I say all that to make this point that things are not always as they seem. Things just aren't always as they seem. At first, on the surface, it seems like something may be good or something may be bad, but after a little bit more time, you can see that it's not you don't, there's never a better place to see this than the difference between teenagers and adulthood. You can see this because uh, you remember being a teenager and dating that girl was a good idea, right? Dating her was the best idea until you got older and then you recognized dating her wasn't a good idea. Or maybe it was him, Maybe you dated him, and he was the bad boy, and he had the leather jacket, and he looked cool, and he was like four years older than you and gave your mom and dad heart palpitations, right? And for you, that was a great idea. It seemed like the best thing in the world. And then you broke up, and your heart was broken. And, and you're, you're so sad. But meanwhile, your father's jumping for joy in the next room, and the perspective kind of changed. Things just aren't always as they seem. And this is true when it relates to, you think about your life and money. When you were younger, some things that simply weren't important, you spent money on. I know I spent money on things when I was younger that weren't significant at all, although they seemed very, very important. Same is true for your friend group. Maybe the group of friends you have now or the group of friends you had back then, they seemed like they were going to help you get in the direction and move in the direction you wanted. But as you got older, you recognized, hold on a second, they're actually not helping me get there. This seemed like good relationships, but the truth is, is it's actually not at all. And today, I'm going to talk about something that isn't always how it seems. Although on the surface, it does seem these two things are intertwined, but the reality is, is they aren't necessarily. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between life and God, because for many people, the relationship between life and God is intertwined. It sounds something like this. If life is good, then God is good. And when life is bad, God is bad. And therefore, the two are intertwined in such a way that they both rise and fall at the same level, and there's no changes at all. Disappointment with life quickly becomes disappointment with God. When your dreams don't come true, when you didn't get the promotion, when he left or when she left, it becomes God's fault. And there are times we sit around and we look and it seems like it's working out for everybody else in the world. And you look and you see people in your friend group and you see people at work and it just seems like God is showing up and working for them. But then for you, you sit back and think, man, where is he? And then the uh, implication then becomes, well, God isn't for me. He's actually against me. Or maybe he just doesn't care at all. Right, like Maybe God's not against me. Some of us may not say that in this room. Maybe you would, but you may not say that. You may just think, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he's in the next room reading the newspaper and he didn't notice what happened this weekend. He didn't realize she left. He didn't realize I didn't get the promotion. It feels like maybe he's not paying attention. For some of you, that's your experience. I just described the reasons why you may have walked away from your faith or maybe why you kind of started to create some distance between you and God. Because if God really cared, then it sounds like then he would have done this. Or if God really cared, this wouldn't have happened to me. If God really cared, then he would have showed up when I prayed for that time when he didn't. And you know what? If God is really cared... He would, and then we'd have a blank, and you can fill in the blank. If God really cared, mom would still be here. If, if God really cared, he wouldn't have let that happen when I was a kid. If, if God really cared, he wouldn't allow me to be born with this disability. I mean, if God really cared, he would have stepped in well before now. And then suddenly, everything in life becomes God's fault, and we come to the realization that uh, either God's not real or worse. He is real. He just doesn't care. And that train of thinking is, is dangerous. More on that in a second. We're in this series titled Bad Boys of Easter where we are looking at the villains of the Easter story. And we find out that there is a little bit of them inside each and every one of us. And although it makes us uncomfortable, we have to wrestle with that reality. Week one, we studied Caiaphas the high priest, where it becomes all about what we've built. We talked about that, about how dangerous it is when we sit back and become self preservation and self focused, where it's like, I got to protect the thing that I have built. And then last week, we talked about Judas and how there are some times and moments in which we might trade our relationship with Jesus for something else. This week's character is a little bit less known. We don't actually know a whole lot about him at all. We don't even know his name. We simply know his judgment and his condemnation and his eventual execution. He was a rebel, not the good kind like that fights the Empire and Emperor Palpatine. He was a different kind. Nothing? Do you guys watch Star Wars? No! This ain't your church. (laughs) Good Lord, I'm just kidding. This is you. We accept all people. Anyway, uh, hopefully that lands better at the 11. I'm not letting it go. (laughs) He was a rebel. He was a rebel, and uh, what I mean is he was one of the Jews that wanted to bring about the revolution that would push Rome away from Jerusalem. That's what they wanted. And this happened many, many times and many different iterations of it. In fact, Barabbas, who was traded for Jesus, you remember this when the crowds, of course you do, you read your Bible, where uh, they traded and they sent Barabbas. Remember Pilate gave them the option, hey, every year we trade out a prisoner, I'll give you uh, Jesus back since he didn't do anything wrong. And uh, the people say, no, we want Barabbas. Barabbas was a rebel leader. So we can assume this guy was associated some sort with that rebellion because in the Greek, the word actually means rebel. And what they did is, is Rome didn't want rebels because when a rebellion started to form, Rome went in and crushed it and they crushed it very quickly and swiftly at the point of a sword. That's how the temple got destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans came in and they didn't play around with this. They needed to get rid of rebellions and it was very, very quick and very, very clean. Everybody died, everybody moved on, no problem. We are not going to have a rebellion. So this guy is part of the rebellion. He just wants to make Jerusalem and the Jews free again. The Romans never let somebody who was a rebel row a Roman galley, which is a way they could punish them. They didn't turn them into slaves and sell them into slavery, which is another way they would punish them. That wouldn't work. Uh, beating and things like that, they didn't just do that. that. That wouldn't work for what they wanted to do. They needed to make an example out of the rebellion. What they needed to do is the Roman government saw fit to use people who would challenge the power of Rome. The only way to take care of that would be to kill them. That's how they did it. Not just kill them, they actually had to be humiliated. They needed to be an example on, def- on the futility of defying Rome. They were going to be made an example of, and this was the perfect, perfect opportunity. And... He was condemned to public execution on a cross. Today, our character that we study is the criminal on the cross, and I believe we're going to find out, just as we did the last couple weeks, that there might be a little bit of him in us as we continue to learn. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 23, verse 32, we normally have notes and pens available for you guys, but... Luke chapter 23, verse 32, two other men, both criminals, again, the Greek word for criminals here is really the word rebel, was also led out with him, him being Jesus to be executed. As he, and as the criminals are walking to their death. Now, this they, they know what a Roman crucifixion is all about. They understand what they're walking into. There's no surprise here. They've seen it. They've smelled it. They've been part of one before, probably. So there's no mincing words or what's going to happen. We're not sure. There's none of that. They know exactly what they're marching into. And as these criminals are marching down the road, getting ready to go to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, they look over and they see the rabbi from Nazareth, and they've heard stories about this guy. They've heard some of, the peop- some of the murmurs about maybe Messiah. They've heard son of God talk, son of man talk. They've heard some things like that, but here he is walking with them, carrying a cross. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left. So here is the criminal who is a rebel who Rome is going to put to death, and he looks over and sees the Jewish rabbi being nailed to the cross next to him, seeing him go through the same exact suffering. Now, crucifixion or crucified, this word, there's not very many descriptions in the Bible of it, if you notice, Well, that's because there's no description needed for those who were reading these first century documents. Everybody who's reading these first century documents when they were written know what a crucifixion is. They're very familiar with the process of crucifixion. It is, in fact, not surprising. No explanation was needed. They knew exactly what it meant because the process of crucifixion started with the scourging where they would beat the individuals and whip them with all sorts of different devices to tear the flesh off of their body. In fact, what they would try to do is they, particularly in Jesus' case, they gave him 39 lashes because 40 would kill you. So 39 was the limit, right up to the limit. And they hurt him in such a way that they wanted to sever the trapezius muscle right here, which those of you, if you just simply make this motion, realize that's the primary muscle creating the space where your lungs can breathe. So what they did is they tried to sever that muscle because as you're hanging on the cross, the weight of your body presses upon your lungs and the best way to get your breath is to shrug to pull your body up. But you can't do that when this muscle is completely severed. So that was the one goal with the scourging. The other goal was to make sure they maimed the back really good, to expose the spine or expose as much of the nerves as possible so that when the individual who was hanging on the cross would try to pull themselves up, the exposed flesh would grind on the wood of the tree. They would also have to carry their cross. In Jesus' particular case, he carried the cross about 2,000 feet. Now, this wasn't the entire cross, so you guys see that over there. It wasn't the entire cross. It was actually the crossbar, the horizontal part. The post stood there and stayed in the ground because what they would do is they would just simply make them carry the crossbar all the way up there and then they would nail them to it and then place them upon the vertical Post. Huge nails, seven to nine inches large nails, would be driven into their hands. And they wouldn't do it way down here because then that would rip the flesh. They wanted it way far up here so that they could really get in between the bones and put as much things in between that as possible. And then they would take their wrists and they would wrap their wrists in rope so that as it began to tear, as the nail eventually began to tear at the flesh, the hand could go nowhere. And all that happened was more and more pain. It would strike the median nerve that runs from your hand all the way up your arm into your shoulder. And they would do that so that the entire time the arms are in agonizing pain. Because the only way you could get your breath was to use your shoulders and to use your arms. But just in case you tried to use your feet, they would bend your legs at a 90 degree angle. So it looked something like this. And they would put your leg up against the post. And they would take the nail straight through the foot, and they would place the feet on top of one another, and then a nine-inch nail would go straight through. And they did that so that all of the weight of the human body rests on the ankle. So this, one of the smallest sections of the body, one of the smallest bones in the body, is, is receiving all of the weight of the body. So here you've got pain in your arms, pain in your legs, and if you want to catch your breath, you have to pull yourself up, grind your back across the the cross, and, by the way, you're putting all of your pressure down onto the small bones of your ankle. Incredibly, incredibly painful. Death usually occurred, ultimately occurred through a combination, according to uh, doctors, a combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation, listen, as the body strained under its own weight. That was Friday. The dynamic of crucifixion is almost as bad. It was a humiliating death. The goal was to destroy the person's reputation. The goal was to demonstrate the futility of resisting Rome. The Romans didn't create crucifixion, but man, they perfected it. They figured out how to get it to suck the worst. And what they did is they made it to where it was a chaotic scene. So as the people are hanging on the cross, and we have a vision of them hanging like so many meters, like four or five meters in the air, and he's way up there. He wasn't way up there. He was probably right here because that's the best place where the crowd who always came for crucifixions because it was right near the city, and they did that on purpose, right near the highway. So the travelers would know not to mess with Rome, especially if you're neighboring this city. And as they see the crucifixion happening, the crowd would gather around and they would berate, spit on, throw rotten food at, throw rocks at. They weren't allowed to throw rocks at their face because then they might knock them unconscious, so the guards wouldn't allow that to happen. But they would allow you to beat their bodies occasionally and they would be berated and humiliated. Chaotic scenes, shouting from the crowds, and spitting on them. And as these three men are on the cross, they are likely spending oxygen and resources screaming and yelling back. Most of the time, it says that before they, their bodies started to fail, the individuals on the cross would scream back at the crowds until they eventually couldn't do it anymore and they expired. normally happened within an hour or so. And as the crowds are berating the three individuals on the cross, as the crowds are just totally taking advantage, just not caring, destroying these individuals on the cross, words that have never been uttered from a Roman cross before and would likely never be uttered again came from the rabbi in the middle. He said, Father, come on, nobody calls for their father when they're dying, everybody knows that they call for their mother call for your mom when you die. Father, forgive them, he says, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. One professor of biology said, it's remarkable that Jesus could say anything because the oxygen was so precious And hanging from a cross, he had a limited amount of energy and oxygen. And for the words for him to spend that energy on, the words he spends it on, is not yelling obscenities at the crowd. It's not trying to justify himself hanging there. It's not begging for mercy. Not for him anyway. He's begging for mercy for those who crucified him. Words that have never been uttered from a Roman cross before echo in that space. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If you grew up with the King James Version like I did, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, even as everything is happening to him, he is thinking about the others who are watching. He's thinking about the other people he's putting the other people first before himself he's not crying out to God and demanding that God pull him off the cross I mean he's raised Lazarus from the dead there's nothing I mean what else is there of course Jesus can come off that cross at any point in time he likely could do it at any point and he's asking God in the garden of Gethsemane God let this pass from me but the answer never came And even, this is the most amazing part, even after everything he's experiencing, after everything he's going through up to this point as an innocent man, he cries out and he says, Father, to imply that he didn't lose faith in his relationship with God. He never lost his relationship with him. Jesus determined that the relationship was deeper than what he was experiencing. Now the rebel Our character, he probably looked over confused and maybe even a little angry uh, because he's like, Jesus, they know exactly what they're doing. You didn't just wake up out of bed, fall out, and then hit a cross. They knew what they were doing, they carried you. Do you remember, Jesus, they arrested you in the garden, they brought you, they conspired against you, they lied, they got you up on the cross. Not only that, they beat you first, then they get you, up on the, they get you out here, and then they get you up on the cross. Jesus, they know what they're doing. At any point, nobody's going to plead, I don't know, like when they get to heaven, ain't nobody going to believe, like, I didn't know we were crucifying Jesus then, I thought we were having brunch. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen at all. That's just not even in the cards. So the rebel and the criminal on the cross, the guy's looking over like, he's delirious. <laughs> he's lost it. That was it. Last bit of blood went out. He can't stay focused. I mean, Jesus, of course they know what they are doing. And some people stood watching. Remember, the crowds were there. And the rulers, the religious leaders, even sneered at him. They said, listen to the mockery. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. If you really are who you say you are, hop up off that cross, And the religious leaders are excited because they thought they were safe. No more arguments from the rabbi, no more humiliating conversations, no more loss of power, no more threat to the temple. It was done, taken care of, no issues. He was going to expire on the cross, no problem. Rebellion, no issues. No more unexplained miracles, we're fine. And then, they weren't the only ones, then two soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Soldiers weren't the only ones mocking Jesus. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. I mean, aren't you the son of God? You're supposed to do something about this. I mean, come on. Uh, If God was with you, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened to you. If God actually loved you and cared for you and supported you, you wouldn't be going through this. I mean, come on, Jesus. Don't you understand these two things are connected? That if God is real, then he would be present with you in this moment, and then he would save you from this moment. Trusting you, Jesus, is foolish because you can't even get yourself off of this exact same punishment that we've been given. Come on, Jesus. Waiting on God is foolish. Isn't it true you felt that way before? Isn't it true that you've uh, felt like this guy on the cross where you sit back and you go, Man, he's just not paying attention. God's not here. God's not looking. This man had lost all faith in God. And in fact, why? Sh- of course he did. What was In his mind, what had God ever done for him? If God was out there, he certainly didn't care because if he cared, he would have intervened and he would have stopped this from happening. He was completely disconnected from God. But here's the twist. If the question would have been asked, where is God? If he would have asked that question, the answer would have been 12 feet to your left. He's right there. You feel like you're in this alone, but he's actually right there. You feel like that there's no answer, but it's right there. And then our character, he senses a shift as they're scolding Jesus. He likely started insulting Jesus probably also. But then there's some sort of shift that seems to happen. There's a change in his viewpoints. He thinks for a minute, hold on a second, I think we may have this wrong. I think um, this might not be right. He He hears words like father on the cross and then words like forgive them. And remember, he's suffering the same way Jesus is. And he hears those words and he recognizes, wait a second, only one person could say those things from the cross. Only one person could have that attitude from the cross. Only one thing, individual, being, could have that attitude on the cross. And then it hits him. Oh, my God. It's him. The other criminal rebuked. The other man, don't you fear God? It clicks. He recognizes. He said, since you are under the same sentence, you're suffering and I'm suffering for what we've done. He's suffering for no reason. We are punished justly, he said, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Our character figures it out. This is the king. The sign they put above his head was right. He is the Messiah. And this is, when you hear this, this is not a demand. This is not an expectation. This is a desperate plea. Jesus, he recognizes, oh my God, that's God. And he says, Remember me. Just please remember me when you get into your kingdom. He's begging. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's like he said, no matter what you've done, in fact, in spite of everything you've done, in spite of everything that you will not be able to do, remember, he's on the cross. He's got hours at best. He's got no chance to live a holy life now. And what he's experienced in his life has created this attitude where maybe he fell away, probably fell away from God. And Jesus sits back and says, you will be with me in paradise. It says that my thoughts, Jesus would say, About you and my love for you are not reflected in what's happened to you. What's happened to you does not mean that I don't love you. It does not mean I do not care about you. I am not what you have experienced. Listen to me. God is not what you have experienced. God is not what you have experienced. For many people, the two are intertwined. Life is bad, so therefore God is bad. That is simply not the case. Because here is a man who deserved everything he got and received nothing but grace. The two are not connected as much as we would think they are. Luke continues. He says, It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And while he said this, and when he said this, he breathed his last. The curtain was to symbolize, it separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. The curtain was rent down the center, which meant the presence of God was now available to everybody. Because before it was just the high priest that could go in there and he had to offer sacrifices on your behalf and he was the one that communed with God for you. No longer. The curtain was rent at the death of Christ and then he was made available for everyone, symbolizing that God was available for all of us, regardless of what you've experienced, regardless of what you have gone through. God is closer than you think. Just like the criminal on the cross. If he would have asked, where is God? The answer is, he's right next to you. And in the same way, when you ask the question, where is God? He's right next to you. What has happened to you is not a reflection of his feelings for you. Your story doesn't mean that he somehow doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he is ignoring you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care for you, What Jesus did for you and what Jesus did for me is a reflection of what God thinks about us, not our life. The actions at the cross determine our worth in his eyes. And according to what I, the book I read, we've been wiped clean. So when you ask, where is God? If you haven't asked that before, you're going to. There's going to be a time in your life when you sit back and go, where is God? And when that moment hits, remember the criminal on the cross sitting right next to God. So when you think that, he's sitting with you right now. When you think that, he's with you in the hospital room. When you sit back and go, where is God? He's with you in the pain. You think, where God, where are you in this moment? He's with you as you're there, as mom transitions to glory. He's with you as dad breathes his last. In the moments when we feel like, and we sit up here and we go, where are you? I'm suffering. You're supposed to be here. This is when I need you. Come on. I need a miracle. I need that moment. Where are you? He's right there. He's with you with your marriage. He's with you in your financial struggle. He's with you as you're raising your kids. He's with you through the entire process. And maybe you walked away for a good reason. I'm sure that if I gave you the microphone, you'd come up here and you'd say, yeah, this is why, and God didn't show up. And we would all sit back and go, man, I can't imagine. I wish, I, I wish, I wish you had my peace. I, I wish you had what I have here. Because that does not reflect what your heavenly father thinks about you. We live in a broken world, and that means bad things happen to good people things that can't be explained, things that can't in our mind be justified. And we sit back and we go, well, where is he? I need him to do something. In that situation, God is not against you. He's for you. He didn't abandon you. He's sitting right next to you. Just because he's not speaking in this moment does not mean he's inactive. And it does not mean that he doesn't care. So as we bring this in for a close, I want to ask a question. Have you drawn conclusions about God because of your experiences? Have you allowed the way people have treated you or the circumstances that you've experienced in your life or what happened to you as a kid or what happened to you as an adult determine your worth in God's eyes? Because if you have, I'm sorry that you've experienced that but that is not the reality of the cross and that is not the reality of what we are here for today. Your worth and what God thinks about you is determined by what his son did for you, not what you have experienced, not what happened to you, not that he left, not that she left. It's determined by what God did for you. And by trusting Jesus, you will find precisely the opposite of what you've experienced in life. You will find grace, mercy, unconditional love, and acceptance. You will find that nowhere else in the world but at the foot of the cross. And God can be trusted to redeem your experience. And if you choose to trust, God can bring good out of the life that has felt bad. He can redeem it for his purposes. And I've seen this in spite of God confidence before in hospital rooms and at grave sites. And it is just awe-inspiring. And it's almost like I look at them and I think, I want whatever you have. Like, and this is my job, and I want whatever you have. Like whatever you have in mourning this person, whatever you have in experiencing this struggle, what is it that you have? And when you talk to them, the answer is simply, my worth is not in what has happened to me. It's not about everything else moving around here. It's about that God is with me. He's standing right next to me. Just like he did for everybody else that we read about in the Bible, he's standing right next next to you so if you hear nothing else when life happens God can be trusted you will have trouble in this life and when you do and you ask the question where is he the answer is he's sitting right next to you for some of us we've lost sight of that Maybe you've been walking around for years with your hands clenched and demanding, God, where are you? And refusing the gift of Jesus because he didn't show up when you expected him to. And God, because he loves you, will not force himself upon you. You have to make that decision. You have to raise your hands and surrender. You have to decide to do that. So I'm going to give us us an opportunity to pray this prayer if you would like to walk with God again and you would like to feel him sitting right there the next time you go through an issue so would you please pray with me if you would like to accept Christ today I want you to pray this prayer Lord I have walked away because of what's happened I have mistaken life for you. I see it now, Lord, through the words of Jesus on the cross. You are with me, and I accept the gift that you gave through Jesus. And now I commit my life to you. Father, Thank you for anyone who prayed that prayer. Lord, strengthen all of us. Strengthen all of us as we wrestle with this uncomfortable reality. That we will face difficult times and we will wonder where you are. But God, I pray that you would remind us that you're walking with us. You're in it with us. You're experiencing it with us. Lord, we're so grateful that the tomb is empty today. And Lord, that we are worshiping the same God that has come through for everybody that we read about in the Bible.
1: That it is the same
0: God who raised the dead. That it's the same God of Abraham, the same God of Jacob, that you are the same God. Maybe our perspective has been off because of our experiences, but Lord, you are the same. And you were there for Jesus, and you were there for the disciples, and you were there for people, church people after that. God, you were there every step of the way. And we worship you this morning, that same God. We love you. give you all the price. And the church said, Amen. amen.